Hey, welcome to our very first episode of our new podcast, our new mini podcast. I'm not sure if that's a, a word or not, but I'm going to use it. Mini podcast, uh, Apologetics in 15. It's this podcast that our campus ministry, The Table at Oklahoma State University, is putting on to provide a resource for our students in, in answering questions that relates to apologetics, religion, philosophy, specifically issues that are coming up in the classroom, things that we're hearing from our students. We wanted to put something in their hands that will, in in 15-ish minutes, hence that name, Apologetics in 15, in 15-ish minutes, hit some of the key ideas on a, a given topic and, and not be exhaustive, but maybe point you to some resources that, that you can go and explore a little bit yourself. Um, so, so that's kind of going to be the, the hope and the goal of this. Uh, I'm Drew Moss. I'll be the host each week, and, and hopefully we'll have some guests come in and help a little bit, but I think mostly it'll be me here most of the time. Um, so with all that, I want to just kind of jump in and get started because, you know, 15 minutes. I, I heard recently from a, a couple students of ours that they were in a class. I think it was a world religions class here at OSU. It, it might have been a philosophy class. And in that class one morning, the professor came in and he had this PowerPoint presentation full of all these slides, all these verses from the Bible that um, spoke about slavery and the idea of slavery. And, and he started going through these one after another, verses out of Exodus 21 that give regulations on how slavery ought to take place in Israel, and, and Deuteronomy 15 and Ephesians 5, where Paul talks to both slaves and masters uh, about how they ought to interact. And, and he goes through all of these, and, and the whole idea is to show how the Bible does not speak against slavery. In fact, it, it, it seems to condone it. It seems to support it. And, and, of course, this is meant to undermine the credibility of Scripture, because if the Bible can be so wrong about things like slavery, then what else is it wrong about? I've heard multiple times in, uh, in the debate or in topics about, like, same-sex marriage, where people would say, hey, you realize that the same Bible that you're using to, to speak against same-sex marriage, like that's the same Bible slave owners were using to support their right to own human beings uh, 150 years ago. And, and that's, a big, that's a big argument, and, and, and that's one that needs to be considered. So I want to ask this question this, uh, this morning, what uh, or does the Bible condone slavery? Does it support slavery through that text? I want us to work through that a little bit. And, and so briefly, here, here's what I want to do. When we address this, there are three things that need to be avoided. And, and when we can avoid these things, I really believe it will bring a lot of clarity to this issue. The first thing is this. Do not confuse the slavery described in the Bible with the slavery that took place in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, this is a big one. Obviously, when, when we in the West, when we in America hear that word slavery, um, that is a word that comes with a lot of ideas in our minds because slavery still today has brought so much wounds to our culture and to our nation. It has so many implications today. And so when we hear slavery, our mind goes one place immediately. It goes to Africans who were shipped over from their continent and then sold off as property to white owners um, to be abused and oppressed and used in whatever they, they want. And so we hear that, and that's what we think of when we think of the slavery described in the Bible, but, but that's just not true. Um, in uh, what we call like the antebellum or pre-Civil War South, um, the slavery that was taking place there in the 1800s was race-based, 
it was chattel slavery, which is just a fancy word of saying property slavery. People were treated as property, as livestock. It was um, by and large permanent, and it was supplied through human trafficking. Um, That's the slavery that took place in America 150 years ago. But what's described in the Bible is not that, at least primarily when, when, when that's being, when slavery is being addressed, it is not um, dealing with those kinds of things in the old Testament. First of all, in Old Testament and New Testament, it was never race-based. It wasn't like in America where everyone who was black was a slave and everyone who was white was free. No, no. Slaves came from all kinds of backgrounds in, in ancient times. And, and honestly, not just race or nation-wise, but even like um, in, in education level. In, in first century, slaves could be doing menial work, but they could also be civil servants. They could be um, like PhD equivalents. They could be doctors. Um, and, and so a lot of slaves were like, you know, professors, private professors for a family living in there, educating them. So they came from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and in the Old Testament, when it's giving regulations on slavery, primarily what the Old Testament is dealing with is uh, a servanthood position that is done voluntarily to pay off debts. That is, I owe you a lot of money, but I, I, I don't have anything to give you. And, and I'm, I'm all out of money. I don't own land. Most people back then wouldn't have owned a lot of property, wouldn't have had a lot of collateral or resources that they could give. There was no such thing as bankruptcy. So I say to you, okay, I, I got no money, but I'll tell you what, I will work for you for two years to pay that off. That's, that is by and large, it's what we would call indentured servitude today. That's by and large what is being described in the scriptures. And, and indentured servitude has been a fairly common thing um, Throughout the world, it's, it's estimated that one-half to two-thirds of all white immigrants to British colonies were indentured servants. Um, that is, they would, they would say, I want to go to the new world. I can't afford a ticket. So they go find a wealthy person and say, tell you what, if you will buy my ticket to get across to the Americas, I will, I will be your servant for three years over there. I will be your servant for one year over there to pay you back. And so that was very common back then. And this is primarily what's happening in um, the Old Testament. And, and so they were designed, they were there to pay off debt. And, and the rule was in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15 outlines it, that they could not be permanently owned by anyone, that they served for a period of time. In fact, every seven years, slaves were to be let go. If your Hebrew brother was working for you, your Israelite brother was working for you, you were to let them go and, and into their freedom, no matter if they had paid back the full debt or not. Uh, in the seventh year, everyone was to be let go. And, and not just that, you were supposed to supply them, supply for them and take care of them to provide for them. Deuteronomy 15, 13 and 14 says this, and when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And so the idea was not only do you let your brother go, but you set him up for success so that he doesn't find himself back in this situation. Again, you want to see your brother prosper. You don't own him and you're trying to work with him. And so it wasn't a permanent thing like the slavery in the U.S. was unless, and this is kind of interesting, unless the slave wanted to stay. Exodus 21.5 says that when a servant is able to go free, if he decides instead, you know what, I, I like it here. I love my master. It literally uses that word. I love my master and I want to stay. Then, then the servant was allowed to stay. Um, we can't fathom 
a slave saying that, a slave from the 1800s in the Deep South saying, I love my master so much that even though I can go free, I just want to stay here. And the reason why is because the slavery you're thinking of is so different than what the Bible is describing in in, in the Old Testament when it's regulating things. Now, when you move into the New Testament times, now, the truth is, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a wide range of slavery. Slavery that, that um, happened from a number of different means, and, and some was more oppressive than others. Uh, but a large population of the slaves that were um, in, or a large population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And, and they, they really did blend in and fit in with most of the free population um, pretty easily and pretty quickly. They did, as I said, all kinds of tasks, um, doctors and professors and all of those things, and they interacted with free people in the market all over the place. Um, they could do anything in the Roman Empire except for serve in public office. Um, in, in the first century, slaves could own property. They could actually own their own slaves, and they could make money, uh, money to the point that they would be able to purchase their own freedom, again, if they wanted to. For many of them, it was preferable to live in the household that they were in, to be sort of part of that household and serve in that household. Um, and so it's, it's not that kind of property. When the Bible is addressing things, it's not addressing primarily that kind of um, property, chattel slavery. And lastly, um, it is not the kind of slavery that is provided through human trafficking. In fact, the Bible explicitly condemns that kind of slavery multiple times. Exodus 21.16, Deuteronomy 24.7, 1 Timothy 1.10, all condemn kidnapping for the sake of selling someone into slavery. They say it's wrong. Um, and, and lastly, this is kind of interesting, the Bible commands Israel in Deuteronomy 23 that if any time a slave were to run away from an oppressive master, that you are to protect them and give them safe harbor. In, in contrast to many of the laws of the countries um, in that region at that time in the Near East um, said, no, you bring them back to their master. And that's, that's what the fugitive laws were in, in the South in, uh, in the 1800s, is you have a responsibility to take that slave back to their master. God says, actually, no, you protect that person. You give them safe harbor and a place to live. Um, so very different from the kind of slavery that we often think of. The second thing to uh, avoid is don't confuse their ancient context with our modern Western context. So this is where a person could easily say, sure, um, Israel in the Old Testament has a lot like nicer rules about slavery. They have a lot more, you know, kind regulations. But why have any regulations at all? Why have any rules at all except for one, which is don't have slavery? Like, why doesn't the Old Testament just say that? Why doesn't God just go and outlaw slavery? And, and here's how I would answer that. Sometimes God's rules for his people Israel are not set forward as the ideal, but as protections for people in an unideal world. That is, they're not laid out to say, this is how I want life to be, but they're laid out to say, this is how, what human beings are like. And so in this broken world, here are some regulations to try and protect people. A great example of this is divorce. Um, the Bible makes clear throughout that divorce is not God's design or intent. And when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, can a, a man divorce his wife for any reason? And, and Jesus says, absolutely not. God designed male and female to be together in marriage. And when he created this one flesh, man and uh, male and female, that that should not be pulled apart. And they say to him, well, well, then why did, this is in Matthew 18, why did Moses then permit people to get divorced? And, and do you remember what Jesus' answer is? Jesus' answer is, 
he did it because your hearts were hard, not because that's what God wanted from people. Um, and in fact, if you go back and look at that, that, that specific rule, it's in Deuteronomy 24 talking about divorce. It's not Moses giving all the different ways you can get a divorce and creating all kinds of loopholes to get out of marriage. That, that ruling in Deuteronomy 24 is specifically, I think, offered up as a protection for women. And, and the ruling is if, if a man decides he doesn't want to be with his wife, he has to sign a document saying he has no rights to her anymore. That he can't leave her in a no man's land where he could, you know, maybe, um, in theory, go back and, and take her for himself again. That, that's not fair or right. And so Moses gives this regulation, not because he says, I want you to divorce, but as a protection, I believe, against women being taken advantage of when people would just try to get in and out of their marriage covenant. And I, I believe that's what the servanthood laws are designed to do. They're designed to be a protection against debilitating poverty against starvation in some cases. There were already a lot of laws set up for that, things like you don't loan to your brother with interest, um, you forgive debts every seven years, um, you don't harvest your field completely, you always leave some around the edges for the poor to come glean off of. But if worse came to worse and a person had to enter servitude, they, they had no other options to pay off their debts or to, to help their family survive, they could enter into servitude, and then God gives laws to forbid that person from being oppressed. That's why those regulations are in there. A person might say, well, why not just give to the poor and outlaw slavery outright? Like, why not just say, okay, we'll just give you money and then you don't have to serve us. You don't have to be our servants. But that's, that's, it's more complicated than that back then. Okay, there aren't charities back then. There's, there's no homeless shelters. There's no welfare or social security. Um, you can't just go down the street and get a job at McDonald's. Like, often this is the only option for a person to be taken care of or for their family to be taken care of is to enter into some deal like this. And so God wants to make sure that those are, are that there are some protections set up to take care of people in that situation. And this principle rings true when it comes to the New Testament world as well. Um, some people might ask, why didn't the early church combat slavery? Why didn't they march against slavery? Why didn't they do more to try and stop it? Um, but, but this sort of assumes that the Roman Empire is something like the modern Western democracy in which you and I live, like one where you can lobby for certain legislation or write your congressman or, or organize mass protests. Um, the Roman Empire didn't work that way. The Greco-Roman world didn't work that way. And truthfully, the church didn't work that way either. That, that wasn't what the church was about recognize that there were a lot of things wrong in Greco-Roman society in the first century, that abortion was prevalent, but you never see the church speaking out against abortion. Uh, government corruption was prevalent, but you don't see Paul writing letters about how government corruption needs to stop. Why? Was it because the church didn't care about those things? Because they weren't important? No, I don't believe so. It's, it's because um, the church has its mind, has its eyes set on something bigger that ultimately undermines all that other wickedness. And, and that's the third thing that I want to bring you to. The, the other mistake is do not miss how the Bible is pointing us to a kingdom in which slavery is no longer possible. Let me say that again. The Bible from front to back is pointing us towards a world, towards a kingdom that would make slavery impossible. This, this happens from the very beginning where we see that all human beings are made in God's image and therefore they're inherently valuable. Um, we see it in what Jesus calls the second greatest commandment. It's given in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself, which means you don't mistreat them. You don't oppress them. 
Um, but then especially when we get in the New Testament, we see that the gospel that the church is proclaiming really works to undermine the institution of slavery and so many other things. When, when we read, when the church is proclaiming that Jesus died for all human beings because God loves all human beings, where Paul says in places like Galatians 3 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says everyone is on equal footing before Jesus now. And, and then he says in 1 Corinthians 7 to, to people who are in slavery or in servanthood that your servanthood is not your identity. You're free in Christ. And then he says, by the way, and those of you who are free, your freedom is not your identity either. You're actually slaves to Christ. And so this, this doesn't determine who you are. Um, he also tells masters that their servants are brothers and that they ought to treat them as such. And all of these things, I think, are, are working towards the ultimate undoing of something like slavery. F.F. F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, said it like this, What Paul's letters do is to bring us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Um, Thomas Sewell, and, and I'm just mentioning him so Jim Johnson will like this podcast, um, he says that, Every major culture until the modern period has had some form of slavery. That is, this idea that slavery was even like a moral problem was, was really not even on anybody's radar for much of human history until the modern period. And, and so the question is, what changed that? How did that change? And what he points to is he says it changed with the evangelical awakening in England. When many people in England took the gospel seriously and took the Bible seriously and they started reading it and, and looking at it and they started looking at that and going, this is incongruent with slavery, with the mistreatment of other human beings. And, and those people, those Christians taking the Bible seriously were, were at the forefront of this movement that abolished slavery in Europe and then worldwide because of those things. And, and so the Bible consistently moves to undermine slavery. And, and when we take it seriously, we can't oppress or mistreat anybody. Um, so the three things to make sure that you're thinking through properly when you address this issue of slavery. I don't believe you could say the Bible condoned it. I don't believe that you can say the Bible gets this wrong. I, I think it's, it's clear all the way through. If, if you want to study some more things on this, here's a couple resources. One is a book called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Cope. Um, and, and it's very, uh, very helpful, has a lot of stuff to do with Old Testament things like ethnic cleansing and bride prices and all of these things. A very helpful book. Another one, there's a guy, he's got a blog called Andy Nacelli, andynacelli.com. I'll try to put these in the notes of the podcast, um, in which he lumps together um, excerpts from Tim Keller books and from D.A. Carson, that, which deal with slavery in the Greco-Roman world. It's really good. Um, so take a look at those things. Uh, to wrap things up, I want to thank Alex Sheets for helping me do a little bit of research on this stuff, and, and thanks Steve Broadway for helping it sound good. Uh, if you have any questions, you can send them to my email, drew at the table OSU. Com. If there's anything coming up in your class that you'd like some help working through, we would love to help you do that. Drew at thetableosu.com. Until next time, we'll see you then.